A quick bit of housekeeping before we get to this episode. This is a bit of a long one, but it is very much a story in four parts. When you hear the wind chimes, you'll know that we're about to change tracks, which means it's a great time to make a cup of tea or pause for later. Also, given the challenges of recording a podcast from our broom closets and through the internet, the sound quality may at times lack that golden studio glow. With that said, on to the episode and happy listening. IDRC. CRDI. If you were to imagine scientists hunting for the next great alternative to antibiotics, I'm guessing you might be picturing lab coats and gleaming white laboratories. Uh, it's a very glamorous process that starts at a wastewater treatment facility. We've had the best luck uh, using wastewater. So what we did, we went to visit the poultry farms. We went, in fact, in more than 60 farms, and we collected uh, feces samples. The hunt may start in some less-than-gleaming places, but it's definitely back to long hours at the lab bench after that. So the first step was, in fact, to get our salmonella isolates. Then we went back to those primary cultures. And then we used a small volume to spot on on plates where we had cultured uh, the salmonella to be able to have now individual uh, plaques, so individual uh, zone of lysis. So several rounds of plaque, plaque purification until we were sure that we had pure phages. In fact, the work is so fascinating and engrossing that some scientists have even lost track of time. First of all, I've not been studying phage for 30 years. <laughs> I think it's more like 20. I started studying phage in nine, 1989. So is it 30 years? Yeah, that's... I thought it was like more 25. Anyhow, okay. I'm Evelyn Barricade. And I'm Justin Kemp, and this is Innovating Alternatives a podcast about antimicrobial resistance and the researchers around the globe who are working to reduce it. In this episode, we meet two teams of researchers looking to develop alternatives to antibiotics by harnessing the natural enemy of bacteria. Take a moment to consider yourself as a physical being. What do you think of? I'm guessing you probably focus on the obvious bits, the bones and muscles that define your form, maybe your skin and hair, perhaps the face you see in the mirror every day. Turns out that more than anything else, we are mainly blood. 80% of our cells are red blood cells. So we are essentially big, walking bags of blood. Pretty much, but that's only half the story. Oh no. Here we go. Well, we're mainly blood if you only count the cells with human DNA. What do you mean if we only count the human cells? Well, if you were to line up all the cells in the average human body, roughly half of them would be bacteria. Wow, so now we're basically walking apartment buildings for bacteria. Well, yes, and and blood, of course. Well, if you think it's impossible to escape your personal bacterial shadow, bacteria themselves aren't excused from having their own set of microscopic groupies. Phages? Exactly. So to help us get a handle on what's what with phages, here's someone who knows their way around a phage. My name is Sylvain Moineau. I'm a professor of microbiology at the Université Laval in Quebec City, Canada. Essentially, every time you look for bacteria, you should find phage. And I joke sometimes saying that if you do not find phages because, because your protocols are wrong, because you should be able to find them, right? But phages don't get along with bacteria quite as well as we do with our microbiome. They wouldn't make for great groupies either. They'd be more like the hungry zombie type. 
Yeah, the relationship between bacteria and phages is, how would you say, um, a little less congenial. Bacteriophages, often just referred to as phages, are viruses of bacteria. I don't know if, if, uh, if people are aware of this, but uh, viruses are the most biological entities on the planet. We're surrounded by viruses. They're more abundant than bacteria. Um, so bacteriophages uh, are specific viruses that would attack only bacteria. So they will not have any impact whatsoever on humans, on animals, on plants, on insects. They're really viruses that are specific uh, to bacteria. I'm guessing this will come as a relief to some of our listeners who heard you say virus. I mean, considering public enemy number one in 2020 was a virus. Right. Well, there's even more good news. Not only are phages harmless to us humans, they also have some very interesting properties that we can harness to our advantage. But to understand those, I'll first let Sylvain explain exactly how phages work. So essentially what they'll do is they will bind uh, again specifically to, a, to the surface of a bacteria and then they will inject their genetic materials inside the bacteria. And at, at that point, they essentially take control of that bacteria and the bacteria becomes like a, a factory of new viruses. So the viruses will start amplifying itself, uh, replicate. And after a certain amount of time, the cell, the bacterial cell will burst a new phage will be released into the environment. So that's your typical way a phage will replicate. Um, and of course, because they're so abundant in our ecosystems, uh, they play uh, multiple roles. And, and one of them is really to, um, to control the bacterial population in every ecosystem. Well, it's pretty obvious from that explanation why we might have an interest in phages. Something along the lines of, my enemies' enemies are my friends. Exactly. There are a couple of interesting points in there if you're in the business of finding alternatives to antibiotics. In other words, looking for different ways to slow down the growth of harmful bacteria, or kill them outright. Yeah, how did Sylvain put it exactly? The bacterial cell will burst? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see bacteria surviving being burst open. Uh, no, you're not going to come back from that easily. That's a process called lysis. But the other interesting and potentially useful feature of phages is their specificity. So... Even though phage like will bind to a cell surface of bacteria, this interaction is actually highly specific. So not any phage will bind to any bacteria. So it's really a something like I call a, a lock and key system. So the phage will have the key. It needs to have the right lock for the proper binding and, and start this lytic or replication cycle. And that's why you will have phage uh, or phages that are specific for salmonella. You will have phages that's specific for E. coli. So there's really a specificity issue. Uh, not only are these phage infecting only bacteria, but they will also infect a subgroup of bacteria in a way. Okay, so we have a naturally occurring virus that's both very good at killing bacteria and is also very targeted in that action. AKA, it wouldn't wipe out all of the good, friendly bacteria along the way. In terms of a therapy for treating bacterial infections, this sounds like a dream come true. So why isn't phage therapy prescribed at the doctor's office already? Well, to answer that question, we have to go back in time. Just over 100 years, in fact, to 1915. Here we go again. That was when the British bacteriologist, Frederick Tort, noticed little spots on the bacterial cultures he was working with. He came to realize that these spots were actually the result of dead bacteria, that they could be transferred from one culture to another, and that they required bacteria to grow. So, did he grasp exactly what it was he was looking at? Well, kind of. He put forward some ideas. One was that it was a natural part of the bacterial life cycle, or perhaps caused by an enzyme secreted by bacteria themselves, or maybe some form of ultramicroscopic virus. 
He gave it the rather broad term of bacteriolytic agent, there's that idea of lysis again, wrote it up for the Lancet Journal and left for the war. Well, that can't be the whole story. Not at all. So a few years later in 1917, Felix Derelle, a self-taught Franco-Canadian biologist, was working at the Institut Pasteur in Paris when he independently described a new microbe. I isolated an invisible microbe with antagonistic properties against the Shiga bacillus. This microbe, a true immunity microbe, is an obligate bacteriophage. It is a strictly specific parasite. That's where he termed the coin bacteriophage, which literally means bacteria eater. It's a bit off the mark given our current knowledge of virus biology, but it was a remarkable discovery nonetheless. He also immediately recognised the therapeutic possibilities of phages. And did he get a chance to test this out? Oh yeah, it was only a couple of years later when he tried using phages to treat a bacterial infection for the first time in Paris. His first patient was a 12-year-old boy with severe dysentery. That must have been pretty fringe in those days, especially since this is about a decade before the discovery of penicillin. Well, they ran a quick safety study, which involved Felix, the hospital's chief of paediatrics, and some unsuspecting interns, ingesting the as-yet untested therapy first. Um, wow. Cheers to advances in the field of medical ethics. So the boy recovered fully, as did several other patients, and phage therapy was born. Soon several companies, both in Europe and North America, including Felix's own commercial laboratory, had begun producing phage preparations. Derelle devoted his scientific life to bacteriophages. He penned over 100 articles and five books on the subject. He travelled widely on the trail of phages, finally arriving in Tbilisi, Georgia, where, in collaboration with George Olivier, founded a bacteriophage institute that actually still exists to this day. He even chalked up a Nobel Prize nomination along the way. Felix Terrell had quite the journey and an illustrious career too. So now I'm even more confused about why phage therapy isn't in common use today, given its very promising start. Well, it wasn't all plain sailing. Critical review of early phage therapy studies questioned the effectiveness of the treatment. And with the arrival of new antibiotic wonder drugs such as penicillin in the 1940s, phage therapy ultimately faded into the background of popular Western medicine. It was not entirely abandoned, though. A handful of countries in Eastern Europe have continued therapeutic phage research, production, and even use to this day. Okay, but even though phage research for therapeutic purposes was kind of sidelined, that wasn't the end of research on phages, per se. No, absolutely not. In fact, phages have played a pivotal role in shaping modern biology. Indeed, phages have, have played a key role in life sciences. They have been used early in, in molecular biology as, as tools uh, to understand uh, heart organisms and understand viruses because they're very small, very simple uh, to study. Uh, there's even Nobel Prizes that have been won by multiple research on, on phage and phage biology. And, and in 2018, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to someone that developed a technology called phage display. Uh, which is technology using phage that help you recognize uh, some specific binding. And even more recently, if you look at all the technology called CRISPR-Cas9, which is a genome editing tool that you can use to modify any organism or the genome of any organism, this CRISPR-Cas9 tool was actually discovered or developed following studies on CRISPR-Cas systems that are naturally found in bacteria. Earlier, I was mentioning to you that, that we're surrounded by viruses and bacteria also are surrounded by viruses that we call phages, uh, but bacteria need to defend. They need to defend themselves against these these uh, these phages and CRISPR-Cas is actually a defense system uh, that the bacteria will have to combat uh, and phages. And, and when people start studying uh, or scientists are studying the system, and that's when we um, they develop 
later on, the CRISPR-Cas9 technology. So that technology that now we're using even in some medical fields is actually based on studies on phage and bacteria interaction. Before CRISPR-Cas9, uh, all the cloning was done call, uh, using enzymes called restriction enzymes. And, and those restriction enzymes will cut the genome and allow you to cut and paste DNA back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, even today also. And those restriction enzymes, those enzymes that help you cloning, they're also a defense system that bacteria are using against phages. So in the 70s, these enzymes were discovered and it was also a Nobel Prize on restriction enzyme. Uh, again, studying phage biology and the interaction with bacteria. So if you go back in history, you'll find a lot of these stories where phages were studied, were analyzed, and, 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 and great discoveries were made. Hold up. This interview was recorded before the announcement of the 2020 Nobel Prizes, wasn't it? It was. And the 2020 Prize in Chemistry was awarded to the researchers who developed the CRISPR-Cas9 tool, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer A. Doudna. Uh, yeah. So phages gave a major assist here once again. Sylvain's comments seem very prescient. Maybe I should ask him what lotto numbers to play. Careful, I'm not sure how much scientists like being compared to fortune tellers. But he is also a bit modest here. He was part of a team of scientists whose foundational research on the CRISPR-Cas mechanism allowed for the development of the tool. Wow, good thing we interviewed him when we did. His inbox must be full of interview requests these days. Okay, back to Sylvain. Where did we leave off? He was just telling us about the different reasons researchers have studied phages over time. Some groups still studied phage biology, just to try, try to understand how these viruses, because back in those days, we didn't know how to work with uh, human viruses. We didn't know much how to work with plant viruses and so forth. So phage became a nice model to study because they were simple. You can work with bacteria. They were safe uh, for the uh, lab workers. And yeah, so they were the first model of, of viruses, I guess. So in one way, the, the, People st stop studying them as phage therapy, but in another way, in life sciences, they were they were the perfect model to study biology. Uh, so yeah, they, they, we keep studying them, and then I would say that after a while, when when we started to have a better grasp of how to grow eukaryotic viruses or viruses that are infecting uh, human cells or animal cells and and so forth, um, you know, phage kind of. Uh, went into um, uh, the backstage a little bit, but now because of antibiotic resistance, they're back. They're back for the past decade now, and a lot of groups are studying them again. So we're entering a new age of phage. <laughs> Great band name, noted. Anyway, yes, the growing emergence of antimicrobial resistance is driving researchers to look for new alternatives to antibiotics in all sorts of places. As it turns out, we might just have to look to the past to tackle the challenges of the future. And we'll need a lot of brain power and collaboration between all types of sectors to tackle an issue as big and far-reaching as antimicrobial resistance, as we learned about on the last episode. Exactly. Drug-resistant and multi-drug-resistant bacteria don't stay confined to the environments where they emerge. Antimicrobial resistance is a problem that doesn't respect boundaries. It crosses country borders, economic sectors, and affects humans, animals, and environmental health. There are so many potential entry points to tackle this issue. But food animal production, especially is an area of growing concern for antimicrobial misuse, as last episode's guest, Professor Dame Sally Davies, pointed out. Clearly, more antibiotics are used in animals than in humans, and many of those are used for growth promotion or preventing infection. We can find better ways of doing that. So speaking of better ways to prevent infection in food animal production, could phage therapy be a potential alternative to antimicrobials? Yeah, it definitely holds potential. 
One area where cutting-edge phage therapy research is happening right now, literally as we speak, involves poultry and the bacterium Salmonella. In fact, I interviewed scientists from two separate research groups who are looking to develop phage-based products to reduce or replace antibiotic use within their specific local context. Tell me more. Yeah, so one group involves a collaboration between researchers at Laval University in Quebec, Canada, led by Sylvain, and the International Livestock Research Institute, or ILRI, in Nairobi, Kenya. Together, these teams are looking to develop a phage product targeting salmonella, optimized for use in the Kenyan context. So my name is uh, Dr. Nicholas Vitek. I'm a microbiologist by training, and I work at the International Livestock Research Institute in Kenya. Yes, so in fact, there are um, several diseases that affect chicken farming in Kenya. And among those diseases, there a majority of them are caused by uh, bacterial infections. And among them, uh, salmonella is, is a big concern for in poultry farming. And this affects farmers at two levels. So one, we have salmonella that uh, infect and will uh, cause disease in chicken. Salmonella is still a problem for chickens in the developing world in low and middle income countries. And one of these strains is called Salmonella gallinarum that causes fowl typhoid. And there's another Salmonella very closely related, related to Salmonella gallinarum that causes uh, another disease called the pulorum disease. So this is caused by Salmonella pulorum. But there's also Salmonella can be a, a zoonotic pathogen also. So uh, we know that Salmonella can be uh, transmitted to humans and cause gastrointestinal symptoms such as uh, diarrhea or abdominal pain. And an example of such uh, Salmonella is uh, Salmonella enteritidis. Salmonella can then affect um, those families that uh, rear chicken uh, at these levels. So on one side, it can affect the chicken, uh, cause disease and have an impact on the production level. But it can also be a health uh, risk for the farmers as well as the as the consumers. It's not only a problem in Kenya. In fact, a, a widespread problem in, in Africa. So we have a, a neighboring countries such as Ethiopia, which has also a problem with salmonella. Uh, we have cases in, in Tanzania and a lot of reports also from Nigeria. I did not realize there were so many types of salmonella. Here in Canada, we only hear about salmonella as a potential hazard for the consumer, but it does make sense that it also harms the chicken and poses a risk to the farm workers who come into close contact with them too. Right, not to mention the economic impacts on the farmers. All right, so if these various forms of salmonella are a major issue for Kenyan poultry farmers... Is it common for producers in Kenya to use antibiotics for prevention and for treatment? Well, like many things in life, it depends. Not all poultry enterprises are the same, and neither are all poultry farmers. Yeah, we have visited both very small-scale, um, mid-size, and then large-scale. So the large-scale, most of them are uh, like subcontractor of a company in Kenya where they forbid them of using antibiotics. So the farms where they had, they were using biocontrol measures were the, the big commercial farms, in fact. But then when we visited the smaller farms where they had uh, hundreds of, like a couple of hundreds or 50 birds, they would use, that's where they would use a lot of antibiotics. And we had also families where, where they were rearing maybe like 10 chickens, very, very small scale. So that's mainly where we saw the, the use of antibiotics in, in those uh, small-scale, middle-scale uh, chicken farming. That's interesting. 
I would have thought the opposite, that it was the larger industrial scale producers using antibiotics with abandon. Well, it might seem surprising at first, but like Nicholas said, bigger operations tend to be governed by stricter regulations, and monitoring their compliance is probably easier than it would be to monitor smaller, less organized operations. One thing that we need maybe to to uh, clarify is that farmers usually are not well trained to diagnose uh, uh, what is the causing pathogen uh, when a when a chicken is uh, in, infected and has uh, is showing uh, clinical signs. They might not know if it's a bacteria or a virus. So. The majority that uh, the majority of farms we have visited, uh, we saw that the farmers were using um, like feed additives in the feed in the food that they were giving to their chicken, and that was basically uh, to prevent uh, infections or even to use as a feed supplement uh, to increase growth rate of chickens. And most of the additives or the the, the feed they were using had like a, a uh, a panel of antibiotics, so they don't use only one antibiotics, but a mix to make sure they target uh, all possible bacterial infections. So that can be a problem uh, when we talk about antimicrobial resistance. And uh, maybe I can add that, I mean, some studies have shown that uh, about 75% of antibiotics used in poultry farming in the feed is released in the environment. So that uh, most probably contribute to uh, the emergence of um, antimicrobial resistance. Antibiotics are commonly given to poultry as a food additive and 75% of them leak out into the environment? It sounds like those are the perfect conditions for the emergence of antimicrobial resistance. Have the researchers looked to see if salmonella is becoming resistant? They have, using a method called the Kirby-Bauer disk diffusion assay. Quite a mouthful. Try saying that five times fast. I'm not even going to try It's quite a cool little test actually. So how it works is you inoculate an agar plate with bacteria and then place a little wafer disc containing an antibiotic on the surface of the plate and leave it to incubate. If the antibiotic kills the bacteria or at least stops it from growing, there will be a clear area around the wafer that is visible called the zone of inhibition. The size of the ring tells you how lethal the antibiotic is to the bacteria being tested. That actually sounds way more straightforward than I was expecting with a name like that. So what did they find? Yes, we saw some uh, resistance. We have analyzed uh, some of our salmonella uh, isolates with a panel of 12 antibiotics. And uh, we also included some E. coli and Shigella strains that we also managed to isolate from the field. And our preliminary data indicate that about 40% of these uh, bacterial isolates are, are multidrug resistant. So they are resistant to more than so to three or more uh, antibiotics. And when we looked at the at the farm level, if these isolates came from farms where they used antibiotics or not, there was not much difference, in fact, because we saw uh, multi-drug resistance or multi-drug resistance strains coming from both farms that use antibiotics and farms that do not use antibiotics. So in other words, yes, there are multi-drug resistant bacteria on the farms that use antibiotics, and they've even made their way onto farms where they don't use them. Yep. So if there's any doubt, now we should be totally clear on the need for alternative ways to prevent and control salmonella on these poultry farms. Right. So that brings us back to the phages. To develop a phage-based product against salmonella, you'd first need to find suitable phages, which could be tricky, right? Because they need to be specific to the bacteria that you're targeting. Yes, exactly. You need to find ones that are specifically lytic for salmonella bacteria. And we already know that if you're looking for phages, you need to follow the bacteria. For sure, phage hunting will take you to all sorts of interesting places. When we went to do our phage hunting, we went in the environment where 
the bacterial host was believed to be found. So what we did, we went to visit the poultry farms where we collected our bacteria. And we went, in fact, in more than 60 farms and we collected uh, feces samples because we know that salmonella can colonize the digestive tract of chicken. So we collected chicken feces uh, from which then salmonella can be isolated. And that's where also in those feces, that's where we also looked for the phages that uh, should infect or be specific for salmonella because it's where the host is found, that's where you'll find the, the bacterial phages. So we collected more than 600 feces samples uh, as well as uh, water samples coming from the chicken farm as well as from slaughterhouses where uh, they slaughter chicken. So as we heard in the intro to this episode, there are a lot of steps and a lot of hours at the lab bench to get from a sample collected on a chicken farm to a pure culture of phages that you could use as part of a phage-based product. Care to break it down for us? I'll do my best. We know that to get phages, you need the associated bacteria. So first up, scientists isolate the target bacteria, in this case salmonella. To do this, they create a primary culture of bacteria. Let's call it the mothership culture. It's pretty easy, really. Just mix the fecal sample with bacteria culture media and incubate to see what grows. The mothership is essentially a sample of all the microorganisms in the chicken feces. Okay, but we aren't interested in every kind of bacteria in the sample, just the salmonella. Exactly, that's where the selective media comes in. Different bacteria have different requirements. If you provide only what your target bacteria need to grow in the growth media, you can get them to flourish while others can't. So if you use a media optimized for salmonella, for example, you can selectively culture them on plates. Nice monocrop lawns of salmonella. And what if some other bacteria sneak through? So the researchers will confirm that what they have is salmonella using genetic methods, PCR and sequencing. Well, it's great that we now have the salmonella, but uh, aren't we looking for phages? We are. So back to the mothership culture. Because if there are salmonella in there, it's likely that there are phages in there too. The next step is to spot little drops of the mothership culture onto your newly grown salmonella lawns. And bingo, if you see a clear spot develop where there is no bacterial growth, called a zone of lysis, there's that word again, you know that you've found phages. Next follows several rounds of purification to ensure that you have a pure culture. Is collecting and purifying bacterial muck the only way to find phages then? It sounds like a lot of work. Well, there's actually another place you can go looking for phages if you're looking for more options. You could just visit a phage library. A phage library? Yep, exactly that. A collection of phages for those who need them. Turns out Sylvain is actually the curator of one of the most diverse phage collections out there. It's even named after our old friend Felix. Yeah, so um, the Felix Derel Reference Center for Bacterial Viruses was actually founded in 1982 by a professor named Hans Ackerman. He was a professor here at the Université Laval, Faculty of Medicine. And since early 2003, uh, uh, his collection has been transferred to our group here, and, and I've been the curator since. The main value of the Felix Terrell collection is actually having phages infecting over 130 bacterial species. So we have a large diversity uh, of phages. There are other collections out there that have more phages, but none of them have actually the diversity of, of phages that is uh, conserved here at the Felix uh, Derel. And, and essentially the mission of the Felix Derel is to collect um, and distribute uh, phages for teaching and research purposes. 
In the last five years, we have sent phages to over 300 research labs around the world in over 35 different countries. And the person really in charge of shipping those phages is Denise Tremblay. She has been handling all the phages and very an expert on handling and distributing uh, phages uh, around the world. Phage research has been picking up uh, quite extensively in the past couple of years. Um, and, and Felix Derel had been a supplier of these reference phages for other researchers to actually start studying them. So Canada is home to the most diverse collection of phages globally and sends them to researchers all over the world. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so once researchers have selected their candidate phages, whether from field samples or a phage library, or a combination of both, as is the case in this project, they begin the process of characterizing the phages. You've got to understand how they function against a range of criteria. Other than which bacteria they infect? Yeah, there are many characteristics you might need your phage to have. Nicholas provides a couple of examples. We have a list of criteria or guidelines that we're trying to aim for for the best phages. For instance, we want phages that um, can grow to high titers, for instance, because uh, at some point we will need to produce the phage uh, to high uh, concentration or to high production levels. Uh, we want phages that are stable uh, at low pH because we know that uh, probably the delivery mechanism will be either through the water uh, from where chicken drink or in the feed and it, they will go through the gastrointestinal tract of chicken where uh, in the stomach, for instance, it's quite acid. So we want phages that are stable. Um, we want also phages that grow at a higher temperature, for instance, because the reason is that uh, the body temperature of chicken is around 42. So we want phages that can also grow uh, or are stable at this uh, temperature. And uh, another thing we look at is also we want phages that have a large tropism because we want to target um, most of the salmonella strains that are either causing disease in chicken or are a threat to human health. So targeting also the zoonotic salmonella. Now that you've narrowed down the phages to the ones you want, you can either use them individually or combine them in a phage cocktail. Yummy. It's an actual thing. Well, fun if you're a phage researcher, not so much if you're the target bacteria. So I guess the real question is, now that you have a phage cocktail, how do you get a chicken to drink it? <laughs> Sounds like a bad joke. A phage researcher and a chicken walk into a bar. Anyway, it's true, manufacturing sufficient phages and finding an effective delivery system is a major technical hurdle. So this project has looked to a private sector collaborator to help solve that problem. Indeed, uh, phage production can be a bottleneck in this project. Uh, and that's why we have teamed up with a small biotech company here in Quebec City, a company called Saint Biolab, startup company uh, as a technology to uh, produce phages at very high level in a powder form. Uh, you can ship very easily to different countries. And because of the level of bacteriophages in, in those powder, you can dilute them. You can dilute them in feeds for animal, for example. You could dilute them in water. You could also feed the, the animals as well. So we're looking at different ways of how we're going to provide this powder or phage containing powder uh, to the farms in, uh, in Kenya. It's really interesting because, um, for example, here, if you would do these type of studies in Canada, um, there's a chlorine in our water and phage don't like chlorine at all. Uh, whereas in Kenya, there's no chlorine. So phage, you can put phage in water over there and they will, uh, they'll be infectious for a long period of time over there. Uh, whereas here, it would not work properly. So there's these differences between countries that we need to be aware of. 
you know, there's a lot of biology, great science you can do, phage characterizing your phage, studying phage bacteria interactions, uh, come up with clever contents where the bacteria, uh, bacterial um, resistant will not emerge. But there's also all this technology that you need to produce the phage. Uh, and sometimes I think uh, this is not appreciated as much as it should, uh, because the know-how of producing the phage is really important as well. This is turning into quite the product development process. Let me see if I'm up to speed so far. So, to develop a phage therapy, you first need to put on your hazmat suit or plug your nose and go phage hunting in bacteria-rich environments. Then, you isolate the phages in your sample, you test them and you purify them. After, you might want to mix it with a couple of other phages into a tasty phage margarita, I mean cocktail, for maximum effectiveness against the target bacteria. And then, you find someone who can manufacture the phages in big enough quantities and in a format that you can transport and administer to the animals. How was that? Bang on. And we're not finished yet. You still need to test the new therapy and controlled animal trials and eventually under field conditions. And assuming all that goes well, get the product licensed in the country where you plan to use it. Eventually, to have a product, I mean, you need to license the product in the country. So we've been discussing with licensing board, the Veterinary Medicines Directorate of Kenya to to have a first interaction with them about the novelty of using phages as a as a treatment or prevention of, prevention of infection and as an alternative to antibiotics. So we'll need to have a product that meets the requirements for them to license a product in Kenya, in their country. And that can vary from one country to another. Oof, product development is no walk in the park. But it does sound like Sylvain, Nicholas and their teams are making really impressive headway. It really is a big challenge. So they're not the only ones working on this type of product. Want to hear about another team developing a phage-based product in a different context? Of course I do. Okay, so time to leave Kenya and travel over an ocean to Pakistan to meet our next research team. Ah, travel. Remember those days? They're becoming a bit of a dim memory. Daydreams aside, this project has some really innovative ideas they're working on. Sounds interesting. So, is chicken farming a big thing in Pakistan? You'd be surprised. It's now the eighth largest producer of poultry products globally and is increasingly modernizing and intensifying. It is unfortunately not immune to the issues of antibiotic misuse and the emergence of antimicrobial resistance. Professor Zafar Hayat, one of the lead researchers based at the University of Veterinary and Animal Sciences in Lahore, explains. We can say uh, starting from 1962 and uh, like uh, 60s, uh, now the industry is very modernized. Uh, it's very uh, starting from the very uh, backyard poultry and uh, very uh, few birds uh, on their at their home for their home consumption. Now it's a, a really integrated industry and uh, we can compare this industry uh, with that of any any industrialized country and any specialized poultry producer of the world. Uh, so, uh, same uh, problems uh, are here for the poultry industry, uh, including the use, uh, uh, probably I have, uh, I should say, indecent use of antibiotics in uh, poultry feed and uh, poultry farms and all the poultry production cycle and supply chain, uh, there is uh, issue of antibiotics, uh, which is uh, like uh, uh, very much uh, 
devastating and uh, disturbing the industry as well as the consumer uh, because as you uh, know uh, there are uh, two main facets of the use of antibiotics like uh, uh, as a growth promoter in the poultry feed and as a thera- therapeutic uh, to check the infection or to check the or control the disease at the farm uh, so both ways uh, uh, poultry industry here in pakistan is using antibiotics uh, uh, although uh, the use of antibiotics is decreasing with the uh, know how but overall uh, pakistani farmers are not much educated in spite of several campaigns of the government and all the uh, things uh, antibiotics used here here in pakistan and uh, uh, associated antimicrobial resistance and all the ill effects are hampering uh, pakistan poultry industry as well as the consumer uh, who consume uh, poultry meat and eggs here in pakistan zafar mentioned something i've heard a few times now from our guests that antibiotics are included in poultry feed not just to deal with bacterial disease but also to promote growth yeah that's one of those unique little challenges when developing alternatives to antibiotics you're dealing with a many-headed beast The alternative has to try and cover as many bases as possible if it's going to compete with antibiotics. The trick might just be that teamwork makes the dream work. Um, I'm Paul Ebner. I'm a professor of animal sciences at Purdue University. Yeah, I think I think you're right in that a silver bullet that replaces everything an antibiotic does is um, finding that is is maybe a fool's errand. Um, but what our approach is that we know we know what these antibiotics do to promote growth you know there's there's a preventing a subclinical infection um preventing just uh, a a metaphylactic uh tr- prevention of an entire flock there's also a metabolic effect um there's lower lesion scores things like this and so what we do is we know that there's there's these different properties of antibiotics or different activities of antibiotics that are helping that chicken grow they're really they're really just aiding that chicken and being more efficient so what we try and do is put together uh maybe a group of different compounds they might be completely unrelated that each have its their own role and together they can they can um replace the the total effect of the antibiotic If I'm getting this straight, antibiotics help promote growth by basically giving the chicken's immune system a boost. Like it doesn't have to expend unnecessary energy fighting infections, etc., so it can more efficiently convert its energy into meat. Yeah, that's basically it. Okay. So, what can we include in the antibiotic alternative that'll have similar growth promotion effects then? Well, before we find that out, maybe it's best to know who we are playing against. So we we chose those two species because we wanted to we wanted to have the the biggest impact we could. We chose Salmonella gallinarum because it's endemic in in uh Pakistan. So and it's um significantly affects the the bird's health. Um so most most of the time when people are targeting salmonella with phages it's it's more of a food safety uh issue they're trying to decrease like anaerobic or typhimurium. We we are going after gallinarum because it's a it's a um it, it's a significant health problem in chickens. So the second one is Clostridium and if you look at different different places where they've moved to more antibiotic free or antibiotic reduced programs um one of the first 
impacts that you'll see is uh, increases in maybe coccidiosis. So what that does is allow uh, clostridium to, um, which is an opportunist, to set up shock and cause infections like necrotic enteritis in chickens. So if you looked at if the tonnage, just tonnage of antibiotics that are used, a lot of the a large percentage of that tonnage is really to control clostridial infections, um, and that those animals are growing quicker, more efficiently, um, because they have they're less impacted by clostridium. So we figured if we could come up with something that that really limited the need to include antibiotics to control clostridial infections, uh, we would make a great impact in terms of uh, the tonnage of antibiotics re- reduced. Smart move, targeting the bacteria that cause chicken farmers to use the most antibiotics by volume. All right, so now we know the target. Back to my question. Who are we putting on this antibiotic alternative dream team? Well, phages. <laughs> yeah, I got that. It is an episode on all things phages after all. But what else? You're not keen for another phage hunting expedition? Second trip down phage isolation and optimization alley? Sure, why not? Highlights real maybe? Then promise you'll answer my question? I can do that. Fortunately, Paul has a talent for breaking things down in short form. Well, it's a very glamorous process that starts at a wastewater treatment facility. Um, and we there's you can isolate phages really wherever the bacteria you're targeting are. Um, we've had the best luck uh, using wastewater, like from human wastewater treatment facilities. Um, we we isolate them. It's, it's similar to fishing, where you have a... We use the bait as the bacteria that we're targeting, and that allows us to identify those those wild type phages, isolate them, and then they go through a very long process. So it's it's one thing to get phages; that's not very hard, um, and it's another thing to identify those phages that you think would be good in a therapy. You weren't kidding. A very long process. Four words that likely substitute for hundreds of hours at the lab bench. Okay, so if you could choose your favorite fruit, what would it be? Bit of an abrupt subject change there, but okay, I'll bite. I'll have to say persimmons, they're, they're very underrated. Me, I personally like mangoes. They taste great, and it turns out they may contain nutraceuticals, which can be used to substitute for the growth promotion effects that antibiotics provide. New word alert. What's a nutraceutical? I'll let Safar answer that one. It's just a combination of nutrient and like a pharmaceutical. Uh, we uh, we uh, like uh, borrow uh, both word and coin a new term that nutraceutical. Uh, it means basically it's a broad umbrella term that is used to describe any product derived from the food sources, particularly with the extra health benefits in addition to the basic nutritional value found in it. Uh, in 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 uh, our project. We are aiming to quantify the phytochemicals and nutraceutical like phenolic acids, flavonoids, and other bioactive compounds derived from the agro-waste, especially fruit-waste. And if we uh, want to talk uh, that uh, which uh, fruit-waste we are uh, very much interested in, uh, it is mango, mango-waste. Uh, mango is very important with respect to uh, their bioactive compounds and uh, there there are so many uh, bioactive compounds like uh, 
there are flavonoids, catechins, mangiferans, phenolic acid, gallic acid, and there are a lot of compounds in uh, peel of the mangoes and in the seed of the mangoes. Finally, some answers. So let me guess. The idea is to use phages in combination with nutraceuticals from mangoes to create an alternative to antibiotics that has both the bacteria-fighting and the growth-promoting properties. Spot on. Uh, so, uh, in our project and uh, at, uh, with our research team and group, uh, we aim to uh, develop alternative to antibiotics by utilizing the combined effect of uh, bacteriophages and nutraceuticals that limit bacterial infection and improve growth. Uh, that, uh, it means that the both uh, advantages of the antibiotics like to limit the bacterial infection uh, with the use of bacteriophage and to improve the growth performance with the use of nutraceutical. As it turns out, there are a few reasons why mangoes are a particularly well-suited source of nutraceuticals for this project. Because chickens can't resist the delicious flavor of a mango phage cocktail? Well, that's a given. But apart from that, there's an environmental and economic argument to be made as well. Uh, mango availability is uh, very much uh, great. Uh, in certain seasons, uh, there are a lot of uh, companies which are processing these fruits, uh, mango fruit, and there is a lot of waste available. And uh, there is a concern of the environment because uh, uh, now they have only one choice to burn this uh, uh, very precious, I should say, uh, agro-industrial uh, byproduct uh, in the uh, brick making industry and other uh, like uh, where the uh, smoke is there and all the environmental pollution is there. So uh, side by side. Uh, it is a very uh, multi-advantageous uh, uh, approach to uh, use that agro-industrial waste from the mangoes uh, to get rid of the environmental pollution, uh, to uh, give some uh, very appreciable uh, uh, financial incentive to the mango processing industry and the nutraceutical, uh, which are very important. Okay, that's pretty neat. So how do researchers figure out exactly what's in mango waste? So skins and pips, and whether those compounds are any good at promoting growth in chickens? Well, it's much like the process of isolation and characterization of the phages. In this case, the isolation process is more of an extraction process, trying to figure out how to get the bioactive compounds out of the wastes. It's a tedious line of study that involves assessing different combinations of factors like temperature, type of solvent, ratios of solvent to sample, extraction time, etc, etc, etc. Once you have your extracts, you want to know what's in them, of course. That's where LCMS, or liquid chromatography mass spectrometry, comes in. Basically, the LC part involves separating a mixture into its multiple components, and the MS part identifies what those parts are. Then the real testing begins. Do these bioactive compounds have any antimicrobial properties themselves? Toxicity studies to see if they are safe, Stability studies, can they survive the high temperatures involved in feed making? Finally, the most promising compounds are combined with phages for pilot animal trials. And if these are successful, large-scale trials under commercial farming conditions. Uh, so this is the model starting from the extract uh, to the characterization and to the isolation enrichment in vitro studies and then small in vivo studies and in vivo, uh, large in vivo studies. And then uh, we will be able to uh, like claim any any product 
which can be used to replace the antibiotics uh, in poultry. Okay, so we've covered what a phage is, we've been phage hunting and got the lowdown on isolating and characterizing them for inclusion in phage therapies. We've seen how they can potentially be combined with other bioactive compounds to mimic the multifaceted action of antibiotics. Basically, we've answered the question, how can phage therapy replace antibiotics in poultry production with very impressive technical answers? But the technical side of product development is only half the story. What about farmers in Kenya and Pakistan who stand to benefit from a phage therapy for salmonella? How are their needs, concerns, and capabilities taken into account? Because if they aren't, good luck with adoption. Too true, that's really important for the success of both projects, which is why both the research teams we've met include a downstream component, which means they have experts on the team looking into factors that can influence the adoption of a new technology and to understand how the social aspect of adoption meshes with the upstream discovery signs. So Dr. Nicole Whitmar is an agricultural economist who is part of the team working on the phage mango extract product for the Pakistani context. So I'm Nicole Whitmar. I am a professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics here at Purdue. Here's how she put it when I asked about the relationship between the upstream discovery science and the downstream social aspects of adoption. A lot of the investigation that goes on in the lab is in response to a need. Uh, And then you really don't know what you need to have that's socially acceptable until you know what's actually possible. So I really see them as sort of parallel activities that need to take place because I think you will have things that society would love to have that are simply not scientifically feasible, at least not right now. And you'll have the opposite, things that are scientifically feasible that society says, no, we don't accept that. Uh, So I really think you need both. And I don't I don't necessarily see that there's a problem with both of those activities happening simultaneously and some things will fail one test and not the other and some things uh, the reverse and so I think it's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem. I really hope that pun was intended. Anyway, Nicole mentioned that societal acceptability can be a challenge when introducing a new technology to the world. Did she say what the potential barriers to the adoption of phage-based products could be? Well, it's complicated. So the regulatory component is one piece. The more complicated, in my mind, component is the actual social, cultural piece. And so if even if the phage works beautifully, um, will people want that to be used in their food production system is a very, very complicated question. It sounds simple at first glance, but it's not as simple as just throwing a label on a food product and calling it good, right? You have to first wonder, so, you know, phages can help because of antibiotic resistance that's resistance that develops from overuse. So you need to back all the way up to, does society think that's a problem? Uh, but before you can answer that, you have to ask, does society actually know the consequences of antibiotic resistance? Right. So part of the problem could actually be that some producers might not even be aware of the problem of antimicrobial resistance. You're providing a solution to a problem that your target consumer might not even know about. That's got to be tricky when there's already a cheap product, antibiotics, that seem to work just fine for promoting growth and preventing infection. At least, for now. Right, but they might know that it's a problem, but not grasp the potential magnitude of the issue which means that they may not be willing to change their behavior and switch to a potentially costlier product. And so a lot of this goes into what's the starting point of understanding this problem. And in general, it's going to be very heterogeneous, 
right? So I'll have segments of a population that really do think this is a really big problem and they're willing to take steps that are really extreme. And you'll have another segment that doesn't see it as a problem for them. So why would they take steps to change their own behavior? So I think understanding people's starting point of knowledge is a challenge. Uh, understanding the heterogeneous viewpoints of different members of society and why, right? Is that coming from a ethical, moral, spiritual, economic um, obligation standpoint? Those are all very different. Uh, so the one that I think about most often is for people who are struggling to feed the family right now, right? So if economic constraints are such that putting food on the table today is a concern, then we really don't get to, we don't, they don't have the luxury of thinking about what other attributes they would like to see in the food production system. Wow, that's an intricate puzzle to try to unpack. Where would you even begin trying to understand that complexity? You know what they say, when the going gets tough, the tough goes shopping. There, there's a couple ways to go about it. It's a hypothetical product, right, in most marketplaces right now. So it's not as simple as saying, well, why don't you like go on down to the supermarket and see which product people buy. Um, so if, if both products existed, it's a bit simpler. In this case, uh, we were looking towards developing a, basically a simulated shopping experiment. So you offer people products that were produced in two different ways and you vary what those products are and what those attributes are. Honestly, you vary it in such a way so that uh, you're trying to elicit people's actual choice. Uh, and so there's a fair amount of survey design and interview design work that goes into how do you get that question asked in a way where you really get as close as you can. You can't eliminate all bias, but you try to do as well as you can to get people's true opinion. Hypothetical shopping. Fun. I think I know where we're getting at here, though. How much you're willing to pay for a product will say something about your preferences. Right. When we crossed over from microbiology to economics, we ventured into your territory, didn't we? Yeah, I definitely feel more at home here. We're trying to understand two things. One, what's your kind of viewpoint on this phage idea right now? But two, where are you coming from? Right. So if you take the standpoint that the, the consumer or the customer is always right, then they're going to pick the product that's right for them. And we're trying to understand why did you feel that was your right product? Is it because of an economic constraint? Is it because you fear to change the system for various reasons? Or is it because your starting point was that antibiotic resistance isn't a problem? So perhaps there's some educational component that comes after that. But right now, we actually don't know any of those pieces, right? So uh, we're kind of in a multi-pronged approach for simulated shopping and measuring perceptions and knowledge. Understanding the need for the educational component and incorporating this downstream research from the project's outset seems to be a big part of what Nicole finds promising about this project. What we don't need is a big public debate of things that could have been answered if we just would have put the information out there in the first place. And at the end of the day, you can't force people to believe something. You can't force people to want something. Uh, but we can do our best to communicate science in such a way that people can see the consequences, both positive and negative, of introducing it. So I think there's value in that uh, effort. And so that's the part that's most exciting to me. Right. 
I think in this current environment of disinformation, in the context of human vaccines, for example, where we're all too familiar with the consequences of poor communication, it's great to hear that research teams are proactively taking steps to understand the informational needs of their user base. Definitely. So that's how one of the research teams is approaching the complex question of adoption. Now, let's go back to our research team working on the phage-based product for poultry production in Kenya. I think this project really illustrates the need to take tradition, culture and economic systems into account when introducing a new product to the market. Sounds exciting. It is. This project has developed an innovative stream of research to understand the dynamics around disease identification and treatment and the perceptions of phages and how those relate to gender. This work is being led by Dr. Zoe Campbell. Uh, my name is Zoe Campbell and I am a gender and socioeconomist uh, working at Ilri in Nairobi. Similarly to what I talked about with Nicole, Zoe mentioned that in her experience, addressing the issue of adoption of a new technology is often thought of as a last step. Yes, so in my experience, it seems like often a a product gets developed and then as a researcher looking at adoption, I'm often brought on later and told, oh, we have this great product. Um, Can you help us figure out how how to make farmers use it? We want farmers to use it. Help us make them use it. Yeah, like we just heard from Nicole, If you consider the needs and concerns of your end users from the outset, it can really reduce the risk of spending years and countless resources into the development of this really sophisticated technology that no one's willing to use. Right, it makes total sense to do it that way. And the work that Zoe's team is doing to understand and identify end users' needs and constraints is also informing the product development process itself. Um, So this project is exciting because essentially they're saying, well, bacteriophages can do a lot of different things. It could prevent disease in chickens. It could possibly treat disease in chickens. It could possibly be used to clean surfaces. So it has a lot, it has a lot of applications. And so I think by thinking very early, what are different groups of farmers going to see as most important? What gaps does this fill for them? That really depends. It depends on if you have 20 chickens, if you have a thousand chickens, it might depend on where in the country you're located and what kinds of access you have to competing products that can do similar things, um, main ones being antibiotics. But there are also some, some vaccines that may address some of the, some of the diseases that bacteriophages can, can also address. So essentially, by, by asking these questions really early, you can change the way that the product works, the way that it's packaged, its delivery system possibly, or focus on certain, certain qualities of the bacteriophage cocktail that might be more important to a specific group. So what I'm hearing is that basically, depending on who you're serving, you'll tweak the cocktail recipe. Party of 200 people? You'll need a tasty cocktail that can be made in large batches in advance. Serving a smaller cocktail to two people on a date? Then you might bring out the fancy glasses and add on some decorative flourishes like rosemary sprigs. Ah, the cocktail analogy. The gift that keeps on giving. Just to add on a bit, if you're serving it to a group of vegans, then you might have to hold the egg whites. Right. I'm guessing you're touching upon the cultural constraints there. Exactly. Okay, but before I totally lose sight of what it is we're actually talking about here, phages, not fancy drinks, maybe an example would be helpful. So if we take, for example, a chicken farmer, let's say she has she has fifty she has fifty chickens and she usually sells them maybe all around Easter for um, all at once. So she might be more concerned about things like chick mortality or things like um, foul typhoid, which might affect her chickens. There's a vaccine, but it's very expensive and it's, it's intramuscular injection. So you have to have someone come out. Um, needles are involved. You know, it's more, more costly and more labor intensive. She might be interested in a, a bacteriophage product because it might reduce chick mortality possibly by dealing with a whole host of salmonella-based infections. Um, or she might be interested in it because 
it might be an alternative to vaccinating for foul typhoid, which a lot of smallholder poultry farmers aren't doing. On the flip side, if you look at a farmer who's got a commercial establishment, thousands and thousands of chickens, they might be interested or more knowledgeable in um, maybe cleaning surfaces or more in the food safety component of reducing salmonella-caused infection. So there are different ways of segmenting the potential user base for this project. She hinted at two in this example. Okay, so the first one is the size of the operation, right? And while considering Zoe is a gender expert, the second is the gender of the poultry producer. You got it. In certain contexts, notably in Kenya, there can be very distinct gender roles in livestock production. It's, it's fairly common, for example, um, in East Africa, for some species to be basically earmarked as being for men or for women. So cows are very much for men. There are jokes about chickens. Chickens are the women's cows. So there are these stereotypes about who's managing and controlling and taking care of certain types of, of livestock. The research team reached out to the gender team very, very early, essentially because of, again, this, this stereotype um, or trend, I should say, that women are, are more responsible for chickens, which is true. And especially in, in smallholder households, that's definitely true. As you go up and production intensifies, you become more and more and more commercial. It seems like women fall out a little bit, that men tend to be more likely to be controlling these very large commercial farms. So essentially the research team reached out to us and said, hey, well, it seems like women and chickens kind of go together. We're not exactly sure how that works, but maybe we need to think about gender when we're designing bacteriophage products. All right, so women are generally expected to be managing poultry production, at least in small-scale production systems. But it's not as simple as just developing a product to suit the needs of small-scale women producers and then marketing it to them, is it? Gender dynamics are never that cut and dried. They definitely aren't. So ownership, for example, is always a tricky question. Maybe women might be taking care of livestock that live in their homes, but but their fathers, husbands... Um, males in the household are, are owning those livestock, so they might be limited. In other systems, for example, in West Africa, it may be that vaccines are provided, for example, for, for sheep and goats, vaccines are provided. Um, there are mass campaigns, but you have to go and register your animals with the government, and that's usually done by men. So if women go and register their animals within their household, then they're seen for sure as being either someone who is perhaps doesn't have a husband or or is disrespecting the men in her household, perhaps, by going to do that. So as we go in, we see not only just these, these trends about who does certain tasks, but we also see differences in, in access and um, also access to information. There's a whole decision-making web at play here. It's not just about identifying your target producers, informing her about your product, and giving her the tools she needs to administer it to her poultry. You also have to consider who holds the purse strings, who has access to veterinary services, and how the information is circulated, etc., etc. And that's not to mention other gendered constraints that can make it more difficult to reach these women producers. Sometimes training opportunities are perhaps more geared towards men. Um, maybe it's at a time of day when it's easier for men to join, or women have a lot of responsibilities at home and it's more challenging for them to join a training that doesn't have some additional accommodations uh, specifically for women. So, so yeah, as, as uh, people are starting to look more uh, we're finding and learning more and more about, about the way that gender interacts with the roles that people have when they're taking care of their livestock. Those are a lot of considerations. Exactly. Hence the need for a gender team. So here's how it all comes together. Essentially, by looking very early at both, both gender and also production system, you can have a better understanding of how bacteriophage product would compete with other products that people have access to, um, what qualities it might have that are most important to people basically feeding information back to the research team about how they might design or test 
different aspects or, or attributes of their phage cocktail. It's really exciting and great that the beginning of the project already incorporates the, the socioeconomic and adoption piece very, very early. I think that that pairing of researchers talking about these challenges early really increases the odds of A, having a successful product that can actually be used commercially in East Africa. B, increases the odds of being able to help probably more farmers with the challenges that they're having. Well, we've gotten a taste of the dizzying number of factors that play into the idea of social acceptability and adoption, but there's a few big ones that probably deserve a closer look. Safety and cost. Well, in general, phages are considered pretty safe. There is the possibility of them carrying genes that code for toxins or even antimicrobial resistance, which can spread to bacteria. But early screening can pick these up quite easily. The vast majority of bacteriophages are actually safe. They don't cause any problem. Uh, of course, these phages, again, are very specific to bacteria, so they will not infect human cells or animal cells. But also, when we start selecting a phage, then we'll go deeper in in the biology of that particular phage. And, and one of the first steps will, step will be to sequence its genome. So we will sequence a genome of, of the phage phages of, of interest, and then we will analyze the genome of that uh, particular uh, phages and, and then in analyzing that genome, normally we'll look at if there's resistant genes or there are toxin genes that would be present in that particular phage. phage. And that's the, if it's the case, then we will simply remove the phage from our, from our bank and we'll no longer be using it. And cost? The high-profile focus on phage therapy lately has mainly involved bespoke medical treatments for human patients. In other words, how phages have saved critically ill patients in high-income countries. That is obviously very expensive and unlikely to translate to lower-income contexts for food production. That's an interesting point, but there are already examples of commercially available phage-based products used in animal production, mainly to control bacteria on products post-harvest. That would suggest that phage production technology is already getting to the level where it's becoming financially viable. Both Sylvain and Paul had some interesting thoughts on the problem of cost. Yeah, with every new biological product, there's always a question about cost. Um, but I think with phage, we're lucky because we're able to produce them at very high level. And I think the cost issue uh, will not be such a big deal. Although we are aware that, especially for uh, for farmers, you really don't want to have a product that will be very costly to them. Uh, so that's why the production part is extremely important. We need to have a product of very good quality, high level of phages uh, that they can even deal it down on farms. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, cost is, is an issue. It's always been an issue, but I think we have ways to uh, reduce that quite a bit. So, yeah, we get a lot of questions about costs, and that's that's legitimate. Um, that, but there's this, this idea that phage therapy would be very, very expensive. You know, once the technology is developed, it, the process is not unlike the process of developing antibiotics. Um, but there's also, you know, people, people's incentives to use a product or change a behavior or change a production system aren't solely driven by cost. You know, in, in drastic cases, it can be law, you know, that you can't use this, you can't do this production uh, practice anymore. Um, in a lot of cases, it's consumer awareness. You know, that's, um, you know, we've had huge changes in production systems and livestock production um, in the U.S., and in many cases, those were driven by consumer demand, which is obviously um, fed by consumer awareness. So you, if you just look at the cost, 
yeah, it's uh, you, you're gonna have a tough time selling it. You know, not not necessarily, but if it's solely cost, then yes, it's probably going to be more expensive than than antibiotics, um, at least in the very short term. Um, but if you're looking at all the incentives that go into someone changing a behavior or changing a production practice, um, and you look at the way that regulations are trending in Pakistan, in the United States and Pakistan, um, there, are, there are going to be more uh, uh, incentives beyond cost. I think Paul highlights an interesting trend where we are perhaps starting to factor in the costs of some of the externalities of doing business, whether it's cheap antibiotics versus antimicrobial resistance or cheap oil versus climate change. Right. And like for climate change, a key component of that has to be public awareness, as consumers can help this trend forward by making some noise about the use of antibiotics in our food. Well, I have to say, I do feel much more hopeful about the issue of antimicrobial resistance after hearing about how these advances in phage technology might start replacing antibiotics in our food system. Plus, it's great to see research teams proactively incorporating social scientists on their team to make sure that the end products are actively considering and responding to the needs of their potential users. Welcome to the future. So now that we've basically solved the issue of antimicrobial resistance, what is there even left to talk about? We've only just scratched the surface. How about a sneak peek at what's next then? Sure. On the next episode, we get our feet wet, looking at some of the innovative approaches that researchers are using to develop alternatives to antibiotics in aquaculture. Yes, you can vaccinate a fish, and you might even be able to do it using a robot. For everyone wanting to learn more about the podcast, read the transcript, or get in touch, visit us on the podcast's homepage linked in the show notes. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, and thanks for listening.